So before I, uh, before we get in the notes, um, I want to pray for Snoya. He's uh, home. He's pretty sick. I guess maybe go to the hospital sick. So um, I also pray for him right now. Snoya. So uh, he has some upper respiratory thing that won't go away. So, Father, we just lift up Snoya to you right now, and we ask God that you would touch his body. I know the Lord is pretty quiet about these things, and so uh, we just ask, Father, that uh, you would move in power and might. We thank you, Jesus, that your work was a complete work, and uh, that uh, you not only purchased so great a salvation, but you also gave us a way for complete restoration by the stripes that you bore. And so we just ask healing uh, on Sonoya's body, particularly on his lungs, Father. Uh, clear them up. Uh, allow him to deep breathely, breathe deeply. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Joe. Okay, so we're jumping right back in to Sermon on the Mount. And we're still in uh, Matthew 5. And Jesus is going down the list of stuff that... Uh, the Pharisees had taught incorrectly for a number of years, and so uh, he just felt like the first sermon he taught, he needed to correct some things. And so he's going to talk about two things that are really closely related. He's going to talk about covenants and commitments. And um, when he talks about covenant, uh, it's about the temptation to uh, disregard the sanctity of marriage. Um, and that is covenant breaking or divorcing. And uh, the second was the temptation to not keep our word with agreements. And that is commitment breaking. And so he, he touches both of these. And um, I could sum it up really quickly. In fact, this morning when Elisa was leaving coming down, bringing all her suitcases down to take off. She asked me last night when I was finishing study what, what passage I was going to teach on today. And she came down this morning. She says, okay, I read it. And here, you can do your sermon in one sentence. Just tell them to keep the first commandment, to love God, and to keep their pants on. And then the, everything's fine. So um, there we've had, all right. She actually said something a little more graphic. I'd say, okay. Um, <laughs> yes. I, she actually said something a little more graphic. I just, I just softened up a little bit. Um, but basically, here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 31. He said, Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, let me set something in the beginning. In, um, in Jewish custom, um, a woman cannot divorce a husband, but a husband can divorce a woman. So it was a very male-dominant culture. So when Jesus is talking about this, he's talking about what the Pharisees had been teaching. And that it was, it, the Pharisees had, had reduced marriage down to the legal covenant what we would call the marriage license, or what we'd do in front of a justice of the peace, or what we'd have a pastor do. And so the Pharisees always focused on the legal aspect of the divorce, about giving a certificate of divorce. And Jesus wanted them to know that um, the physical union of marriage supersedes the legal certificate. So Jesus wanted to know it's not about the certificate. It's not about a husband wanting to divorce a wife. And back then, they could divorce for any reason. If, if he just didn't like his wife, he could divorce her. If there's somebody else he's more interested in, he could divorce her. He could divorce her any reason he wanted. He could say she wasn't a good cook, and he could divorce her. And so Jesus wanted them to know um, that the reason he considered remarriage to be adultery is because he considered the union of two becoming one to be more substantial in the marriage covenant than the legal certificate. And so uh, the sanctity of marriage is really a really, really important kingdom value. Um, it's um, divorce and remarriage are allowed for two reasons in Scripture. Jesus addressed one, and we're going to talk about it, and that is adultery. The other one Paul talks about, and it's about um, desertion. It's about a spouse leaving a spouse for, for spiritual reasons. And so um, 
Today, the prevailing practice or belief in the church is, you know, if you get divorced, just get another spouse, just get remarried. And, and, and we need to be really clear here that um, there are people who are divorced before they were saved. There are people who divorced for other reasons. People have been remarried. And if, if, if that's the case, if, if the marriage ended not because of immorality, but the marriage ended because of whatever reason, and now somebody is remarried, we're not saying, and Jesus wasn't saying, well, that marriage isn't any good. You've got to end that one. But there needs to be a process of confession, God's grace and mercy, God's forgiveness to work through that. But I want to talk about the biblical com components to establishing a marriage and the biblical components to ending a marriage. And just let me say something up front. Adultery is grounds for divorce, but adultery doesn't force divorce. In other words, there can still be reconciliation. There can be still be restoration. I have, I've worked with couples where the husband has been unfaithful or the wife has been unfaithful, and we've worked through walking and restoring the marriage. And so just because someone has been unfaithful or has fallen in adultery doesn't mean they have to get divorced. But that is one of the only reasons that God gives us for divorce. So there are two biblical components. First is a covenant, and, and God is a covenant God. What we just did right here, Jesus called the new covenant. And so, and, and um, you know, in, in, in a few months, um, we have a couple that's good marriage counseling. But um, <laughs> premarital counseling, not marriage counseling. But... Um, God's relationship with man is a history of covenants all the way back to Adam. He said, Adam, here's my covenant with you. Everything in the garden's yours. You, you can eat of whatever you want. There's just one tree in the middle. You know, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat of that tree. So here's the deal. If you eat of everything else, we have perfect fellowship. But if you eat of this tree, it's going to break fellowship. And that was the covenant. And Adam couldn't keep the covenant. And you go from covenants from Adam, then there's a covenant with Noah, then there's a covenant with Moses, I mean Abraham, then there's a covenant with Moses. And we walk through all these covenants that God has, and then we get to Jesus, and Jesus gives us a new covenant. And then he says that new covenant is shown relationally in a marriage between a husband and a wife. He says, just as Christ loves the church, so the husband should love the wife, and just as the church serves the Lord, the wife should serve the husband. And so... So the second is, there's, there's the legal certificate, but then Jesus also said, the thing that makes two becoming one is not the vows, and is not signing a marriage license. It is the consummation of the marriage. It is the husband and wife joined together in intimacy, and that intimacy is the part that God looks upon as a man and a woman being joined together in union and becoming one. And so... When here's, here's what Jesus says. So for the marriage covenant to end in God's eyes, the legal commitment must end, but also the physical bond has to be broken. If both of those things haven't taken place, then God says there, there's no reason and there's no purpose, and he doesn't recognize a grant of divorce, a decree of divorce. And so we, we walk through this conversation, and the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus in the whole issue about divorce. And so they have this discussion with him. So Jesus makes it really clear. He says that, that only one reason for divorce is acceptable before God, and that is sexual morality. Now let me talk about Jesus didn't address the issue of um, desertion because Paul talks about it when he writes to the church at Corinth. And the reason Jesus didn't talk about desertion is because Jesus was talking to um, Jewish people. Paul's talking to Gentiles, and it's a whole different, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But I want to talk first about adultery. So this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees who are asking about a, a, a decree of divorce. So Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And it can be reversed, too. I mean, it's not just... So, so if, if there is a divorce that takes place, um, and it's not because of sexual immorality, 
God says if both people get remarried, both in the eyes of God are committing adultery because, yes, the legal decree has been separated by a judge. But in God's kingdom, the physical union is the decree that he looks upon as the two becoming one. So this, this word immorality um, in the Greek is, is porneia, and we can just, just by hearing that word, you know everything it encompasses. So it refers to a, a, a plethora of acts of immorality, that, that word immorality. And so even though Jesus says if a man looks upon a woman and lusts after her in his heart, he's already committed adultery. God doesn't see that as a reason for divorce because God says that in the heart can be forgiven. If a man looks, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just forgive us our sins. There was something about the sanctity of the unity of a man and a woman being joined together in intimacy that causes their very lives, their very spirits to be knit together. They become one. In God's eyes, you are one. And so, you know, so I'm saying not to say that if, if one of the spouses is viewing pornography, just because they may be committing adultery in their heart, that's not grounds for divorce. It is grounds to get counseling and to get help and maybe separation and a whole process. But biblically, it's not a grounds for divorce. Um, having sexual relationship with one who is not their spouse breaks the covenant, commits adultery, and God says that's the ground of divorce. So anyone who, who divorces his wife, if she's being faithful to him, if anybody divorces his wife, um, when she's being faithful and marries another woman, he commits adultery. Here's the other thing. So many divorced women are almost caused or forced to commit adultery for financial reasons. In other words, their husband has left him. They no longer have the income they had before. And maybe he left them not because of sexual morality. Maybe he just left them because they don't want to be married anymore or for whatever reason. And, and so it puts her in a position to where the only way she can survive and keep her kids or whatever is to marry somebody else. And so it's almost like the, the, the man puts her in a position where she almost has to commit adultery in order for her to survive. But according to scripture, God says it's not an excuse. That's not a reason. That's not something he's going to accept. And so Jesus goes on and he talks about the original intention for marriage. Again, when he's talking to the Pharisees. So they came to him and said, is it lawful, Pharisees asking Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Because they could under Jewish law. And he answered and said to them, have you not read, he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So a man and a wife are no longer two in God's eyes when the marriage is consummated. He sees them as one. In fact, Paul, when he talks about this, he says, this is a great mystery. This, it is a great mystery, but there is something spiritually dynamic that happens when a man and woman are joined together in intimacy. The problem we have today in our culture, if, if what God says is true, if biblically when a man and woman are joined together in sexual relationship, they become one, we live in a society full of fragmented people because they sleep with somebody and become one, and then they separate and they sleep with somebody else, and then they sleep with somebody else, and they sleep with somebody else, and pretty much they've lost their entire identity, and they're broken, and they are so messed up because they have ripped themselves apart. They've fragmented themselves more and more and more. And so there is something, when God says to become one, there's something that God created in the very nature when he created man and woman, when he spoke about it in the garden, because he, he's in the garden, he said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife when Adam didn't have a mom and dad. But God said, this is what you do. So there's God from the beginning established something very, very dynamic in the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And so, um, and, and Paul says, look it, if you really want to understand what this relationship with Jesus is like, let's look at the marriage covenant in its purest form. 
that if you look at how Jesus loves you, husbands, that's how you're supposed to love your wife. And, and wives, if you look at how the church loves Jesus and serves him, that's how you're to love your husband. And so Paul understood that, that spiritually, when we become born again, we become one with Christ. We become one with him in the same vein in which a husband and wife become one, we become one with God. So God defined marriage as permanently exclusive. In other words, once you say I do, and once the marriage is, con is consummated, that's it. He, he, he sees the two of you now as one. He, he works in your life as one. Um, if you've been married at any amount of time, you know there's a process of two becoming one. There's, there's a lot of, I mean, my wife had to put up with a lot of stuff for us to, to be one. There's a lot of corners to be nicked off. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that happen in a marriage. And we've been married 45 years, and it's still, we're still working at it. You know, it's just, it's, it's the way it is. But the, the deal is, we have to understand it's one man, one woman, one flesh, not to be separated, period. And because, you know, Jesus goes on and, and tells them, look it, here's the whole reason we have a decree of divorce. It was not God's idea. He says this, they said to him, why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. So, God never, okay, if, if a marriage is, but because of sinful nature of man, God says, okay, if, if a marriage is going to be dissolved, there's only one way I'm going to recognize that dissolved marriage. There's only one way that a woman or a man can get remarried, is if the other one has committed adultery. But Paul also, so, so we have adultery is, is a reason for divorce. And, and just let me say, we have issues that, that aren't talked about in Scripture in marriages today that are very tough to work through. Um, being married to an alcoholic or a drug addict, someone who is abusive, those aren't addressed in Scripture. And, and the issue is not should you walk away from that relationship to protect your life. The issue is should you get remarried? So the issue never was you couldn't get divorced for a reason that was not for adultery. But if you did, then in God's eyes, you're still one with that person, no matter how broken they are. You're still one with them, and therefore, you should not get remarried. Now, that's a tough one. But that's, that's a really difficult one to walk through. But God is a covenant God. God has set the standards and he expects us to walk by him. And so, you know, um, we have to understand that, but Paul says there was another issue at the church at Corinth that, uh, and here's what was happening. He was preaching the gospel and in a lot of circumstances, the wife was getting saved, but the husband wasn't. And so in the home, there was this conflict Delia can kind of identify with that conflict. All those years she prayed for her husband to be saved. So here's what, what Paul, let's, let's walk around when he says, so he encounters the situation with the Gentiles. It wasn't something, you know, that, that they, they had necessarily dealt with with Jews. Because understand, Jews were born religious. They grew up religious. Their whole life was religious. I mean, there, it wasn't like... In those days, there were proselytes. There were a few who were converted into Judaism, but if you were born a Jew, you were religious. I mean, you just walked by the law. You walked by the Torah. You know, the Pharisees were changing the Talmud whenever it fit their own um, ideas or their self-control. Um, but in the situation with Gentiles, it wasn't that way. It wasn't, they weren't necessarily spiritual beings. They didn't necessarily, I mean, they, they worshiped some really strange gods. You know, we get Greek mythology and all that that comes through there. But there were situations to where one spouse would hear the gospel and get saved, and the other one wouldn't. And so the homes became divided. And those, those, Jesus didn't talk about being deserted because of faith. And here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 7, 15, Paul says, 
But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So a converted spouse was not to leave the unconverted spouse, but if the unconverted spouse deserted the converted spouse and there was a divorce because of it, according to Paul, he says you're no longer under the bondage covenant of marriage and you're allowed to remarry. So he said, if you're deserted because you're a Christian and your spouse doesn't want to embrace your faith, that's okay. But if you get saved and your spouse still wants to stay married to you, you have to stay married to them. And, and th there's no, you, you can't say we're unequally yoked because I believe in Jesus and they don't. So Paul's making it really clear. He says this in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 12 through 14. If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let him not divorce her. Living wife is sanctified by the husband. So Paul's saying, look, it, there, there is a sanctification over your home that you become a covering for your unsaved spouse. And he goes on later, he talks about wives praying for their husbands. And he talks about husbands praying for their wives. Um, and if you remain faithful to that, I mean, the great testimony in our own community is, is Delia. How many years did you pray for your husband before he got saved? 32 years. So for 32 years, she walked with Jesus. 32 years, he mocked her. He ridiculed her. He did everything, you know, to annoy her. You know, had all his buddies over for their big beer parties in the garage, had his bar set up in the garage, did all of that, and she loved him. She prayed for him. She prayed for him. She prayed for him. She prayed for him. 32 years later, took cancer, knowing that he was going to die, but he came to Christ. And that's, according to Paul, that's how it's supposed to be lived out. Now, if he at any time had said, forget this, I am not going to live with this woman anymore, I can't handle her Christianity, and he divorced Delia, according to Scripture, Delia would be released to remarry. And she wouldn't be committing adultery if she remarried. Right on schedule. So, then he talks about separated couples. Believers separate for reasons other than adultery or desertion, they are not to seek remarriage. That's what Paul says. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And the same is true. A husband was not to leave his wife because of their faith. But if they did leave, Paul says there is the case, you know, um, where, let me just use Delia as an example. Let's say Delia gets saved and her husband makes life so miserable she can't live in the house of him anymore and so she leaves him. Um, she is not to remarry. She's to remain unmarried um, according to scripture. She can be out of the relationship. She cannot have a relationship with him anymore but she can't go into the arms of another man. And so um, Physical abuse isn't addressed in Scripture, and, and it just, you know, I already talked about that. that that's, a, that's a really tough one. And I just want to emphasize again, if you know anybody who's been divorced, and it wasn't because of adultery, and they've remarried, you know, and they, they read the Bible, and they see this, and they go, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm in adultery. What do I do? In, in those situations, we confess our sin. We let God forgive us our sin, cleanse us from unrighteousness, and now that we know the truth, now that we know, then this marriage is it. You don't divorce that person and say, I can't be married to you because we're committing adultery. Uh, because you've made another covenant with God, God sees you as one. You pray, you restore that relationship. So um, a physical union's been formed and it's now sacred and so God recognizes that. But there's also, there's also the issue of making false commitments. So Jesus not only talked about the marriage covenant, but there was also a, a, a problem that the Pharisees had taken the, the third command 
and they had twisted it around. And you understand all these things Jesus is talking about. He's taking the Ten Commandments. He's going down the list. He says, okay, you guys, the Pharisees, the, the, the spiritual leaders have really kind of messed this up. So let's make sure we understand what the intention of the heart of God was when he said this. And so when, when, God, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, he said, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So that's what this is talking about. But the Pharisees had reduced it to something else. So Jesus says this, You have heard it said that it was said of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. He didn't know about hair dye back then, so you can make white hair black, or you can make black hair white. But he's talking about once it's turned white, it's white, okay? It says, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So he taught his disciples on the importance of resisting the temptation to not keep our word, and to not keep our agreements. Um, and again, he didn't sp refer to a specific law. He actually included a number of laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, but the third commandment is, is pretty close. And so he wasn't, again, he wasn't, correct, he wasn't correcting Mosaic law. He was restoring it to its original intent. Um, Exodus 27, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So... The Pharisees twisted this around to a place where I think a lot of people in the church see it today. The Pharisees said, this is talking about profanity, about using the name of God profanely with your mouth. And I don't have to give you a list of, of words, you know, um, how people take the name of God and use it in profanity, Jesus as well. And so they reduced it to that. They reduced it to say, you're not to use profanity. But that was not the heart of God when he talked about making these type of commitments with our mouth. And so um, it was about dishonesty. It was about when you said something, when you gave your word, because you are a child of God, if you give your word and you don't follow through, you're taking the name of the Lord in vain because you're not keeping the commitment that you said you would make. According to God, our word is our bond. And so the Pharisees established all kinds of ways to make vows without using the name of God. And so that's why Jesus goes down this list and addresses all these things that were not in the Old Testament, but that had become a practice within Judaism about when you wanted to make an oath, when you want to say something, you would swear by something. And we see this today, you know, in, in movies, you know, I swear on my mother's grave, or I, you know, I, one of my pets, swear by this, I swear to that. You know, one of my, um, one of my pet peeves, and when people are saying something, he says, to tell the truth, I really think, and, and I think, okay, so does that mean you're not telling the truth when you, when you say that? You know, we should always tell the truth. We should always, you know, not swear at all. So the Pharisees established new ways to make vows. And what they did was they made vows according to creatures, according to created things, instead of God. And so by doing that, they didn't feel it was a problem to swear falsely. If I swear by Jerusalem, it's no big deal. If I swear by God, then I got a problem. So let's change it. So basically what they said is, we're going to give you a way to say I'm being honest when you're being dishonest. You're going to swear by whatever. You're going to swear by, and, and Jesus went down this list. You don't swear by the earth. You don't swear by heaven. You don't swear by Jerusalem. You don't swear by your head. You, you just, he says, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. And, and in Scripture, oaths or vows were permitted, and they were necessary. But God wanted 
his people to know, because you're my people, when you make a vow, when you make an oath, you're representing me, and therefore what you say should be enough. And too many people forget about that, not only in the marriage covenant, because when people get married, we have them make vows. They can either write their own vows or, you know, we have vows they can repeat. But they make a verbal vow. They make a verbal commitment that they're going to do certain things in this marriage. And, and you know, in the, um, in, in the canned marriage ceremony, you know, it's sickness, health, richer, poorer, you know, for better, for worse, till death do us part. So basically when you made that vow, you're saying there ain't nothing you know, it's like Paul says, neither height nor depth nor principalities nor things present nor things to come will separate us from the love of God. That's the same thing the marriage vow says. There's nothing that's going to happen that's going to separate us in our marriage. I, um, I, I pretty much do not like commercials. Um, can I just say I'm so tired of 1-800-CARS-FOR-KIDS. I don't ever want to hear that jingle again. Um, but... I love the Wounded Warrior commercials where you have a wife and kids who are loving on a husband who has been, he's in a wheelchair, he's learning how to use motor functions again, they have brain damage, they've lost an eye, they've been burned, and these women are standing by their men loving him, the kids are loving dad, he's playing with them, and I think that is such the picture of what God meant when a husband and wife commit themselves to each other, that they're going to love regardless. Regardless of what happens, you're by their side. And so Jesus talks about there's oaths that are used for godly purposes and oaths that are used for ungodly purposes. And, and he just wanted them to understand if you're truly a righteous person, you're truly walking with God and you're representing him in your life, then all you have to do is say yes or no, and that should be enough. You don't have to say, I promise. You don't have to say, I swear. You just say, yes, I'll do it. No, I won't do it. And you just hold to it. I was with some, a family yesterday, and, and um, the mom told a story about how her daughter had um, decided that a plant needed watering. It was a cactus. And... Uh, she kept pouring water in the cactus. Pretty soon, you know, it comes out of the bottom of the pot, and water goes everywhere. And, and so the little girl came to mom and says, Mom, uh, there's a problem. Um, I just want you to know that I watered the plant for you, but I gave it too much water, and it's everywhere. And, and the mom took, including she's telling this story, and she says, because you came to me and told me the truth, I'm not going to punish you. There's no, you. You made a mistake. That's fine. Well, later... The mom is having a conversation about she's supposed to go with to lunch with her grandmother today and go do a number of things, and she doesn't want to do it because it's the only day she has off. And so she says to me while she's telling the story, she says, so I think I'm just going to lie. It's okay. I'm just going to say I'm sick. And I said, well, wait. You just commended your daughter for not lying. And now you're telling me you want to lie? And she goes, well, everybody knows I'm a liar. I just want to make sure she doesn't grow up to be one. I mean, and that is a sad testimony of life. You know, but if, if we live a life of righteousness and our yes is always yes and our no is always no, People are never going to second guess or question what we're saying we're going to do or what we do, are not going to do. And too often, I think, even in the church, we want to let people down easily. So we'll say, I'll try and get it done. When in the back of our head, ain't no way I'm going to do it. You know, we, we try and be kind about it, but the bottom line is we're lying. You know, our yes is not our yes, and our no is not our no. And so... Jesus said, when you take a legal oath, you have to get that oath. When we go to a court of law, we make an oath in front of a judge and a jury or whomever to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And even though people put their hand in the Bible and make that vow, we know they still lie. 
Jesus in his trial, if, if you read it, they kept asking him questions and he wouldn't answer them. Finally, finally, the high priest says to Jesus, I put you under an oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Once he was put under an oath to God, Jesus said, okay, now I have to tell them the truth. Am I the son of God? Yes, just like you said I am, I am. Up until that moment, if you read scripture, he didn't answer any of their questions. He didn't have to. He wasn't under an oath. Now the Pharisee says, okay, I'm going to hold you to, you say you're a godly man, so in the presence of God, are you the son of God? So now he has to tell the truth. And so, you know, Paul talked about, he used, he, he used God as his witness on a couple of times when he writes his letters to these churches. And, and the reason he uses God as his witness is because there were people that were spreading rumors about him. There were people saying that Paul had ulterior motives and were doing things differently than what he presented. When he writes to the church of Thessalonica, he says, Neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know. God is my witness. So there's accusations giving that Paul, by persuasive speech, not by truth, but by flattering words, trying to cause the Thessalonians to, to feel good about themselves, he was using flattery words to convert them to Christianity. And Paul says, look it, God is my witness. I didn't use any flattering words. I just told them the truth. Again, when he writes to the church of Philippi, he says, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. So he is saying, look, this isn't lip service. God is my witness. Right now, when I'm saying I love you and I long to be with you, I'm telling you the truth. It, it is the longing of my heart. So Jesus says, don't swear at all. And he wasn't talking about the legal swearing. You promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He was talking about ordinary conversations with, and you asked me to do something. He's talking about my conversations with you. You know, when, when you ask me to do something, either I say, yes, I will, or no, I won't. And if I say, yes, I will, I better follow through and be there when I say I'll be there and do what I say I'll do. And so, um, and, and he goes on, he says, don't swear by created things. When he talks about the hair, he's saying, look it, why in the world are you going to swear on your head? You have no control over your head. Your hair is going to turn white if your hair wants to turn white. So what authority is there swearing on your own head? You know, just say yes or just say no. And so Jesus is saying that every oath is an ultimate reference to God. I, I love... I tell this story often, but I, I, I love in, in the Old Testament um, the story of Balaam um, with King Balak. Now, if, if you know the story, Balak was the enemy of Israel, and Balak knew that to fight Israel was really not to fight Israel, but what meant he had to fight God. And he knew that God was on his side, so he hired a prophet of Israel, Balaam, to prophesy against Israel, believing that the prophet said, thus saith God, Balak is going to kill all of you and win the war, that God would have to honor the word of the prophet. And so that's, he paid Balaam to do that. But every time Balaam opened his mouth to prophesy, he prophesied to the benefit of Israel. And Balak got upset with him. And, and Balak says, what are you doing? I've paid you. I've paid you. you. We have a deal here. You gave me your word. I paid you to prophesy against them so I could defeat them. And, and Balaam's response to Balak is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do, or has he spoken and will he not make it good? See, when we give our word as righteous people, that should be what people say about us. People should say, Rick is not a man. He's an adopted son of the living God. And because he is the, the son of God, he doesn't need 
to repent. He doesn't need to, he, he's not going to lie because what he says is true because he knows he represents God. Every one of us should do that. Jesus says, let our yes be yes and, and, and let our, our no be no. And um, Jesus calls us to truthfulness and integrity to our commitments. Um, and people of integrity don't need to make oaths. People of integrity in relationship when you say, hey, I promise. If I just say yes, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. And, um, and, and part of us, you know, God takes every covenant and commitment we make seriously. So I, I believe even when, when you apply for that credit card or that car loan or whatever, and you're late on your payment, and you're avoiding phone calls from bill collectors, you're doing just what Jesus said not to do. You made an oath. You made a promise. By avoiding to answer the phone, you've become a dishonest person because you're avoiding keeping your commitment. That's what it was all about. Um, and some people deliberately hide, you know, from bill collectors or, or from whatever. And, and um, they're evasive when confronted about the truth. And Jesus says we're supposed to resist this kind of falsehood. Um, our lifestyle is to live out truth and to simply do what we say we're going to do. Um, we are the disciples. I am the way, the truth, and the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So if we don't follow through on what we say, we have to acknowledge it to those we committed to. There has to be a process. Sometimes stuff just happens. I mean, I had, a, I had an appointment Friday, and I didn't make the appointment. Um, a pastor came and said, I really want to talk to you. Can we get coffee together? One o'clock Friday mantra. I said, okay. 110, nobody's there. 120, no one's there. 130, no one's there. So I call, they don't answer the phone. I send a text. And uh, then I got a text late Friday night. He and his wife had gone away for three days to fast and pray, because his wife was a professor at APU, to fast and pray about APU's decision to allow open expressions of affection between homosexuals on campus and the three days turned into five days. And he was in the midst of fasting and prayer with his wife and wasn't even thinking about his schedule. So he texted me late that night, apologized up and down, says, I'm so sorry. It's just that we have been so overwhelmed by this. So was his yes, did he lie to me? No. You know, But he realized he didn't keep that commitment. He didn't keep that oath. He texted me. He apologized. And uh, we're going to meet again this next week. And I, I can guarantee you, he'll be there. You know, And so we need to make sure that whether it's with our spouse, with our children, how many times do parents lie to their kids just to get them off their back? You know, to in our workplace, with our friends, with our financial obligations, ministry situations, how many times? This is getting picky, but how many times has someone asked you to pray for them and you've never prayed for them, but you said you would? Why do they ask you to pray? Because they believe you're a person of your word. They believe you're a person who will pray for them. And how many times do we forget? And, and I'm, I'm guilty of it. We're both guilty of it. When people ask us now to pray, we, we've made a list so we don't forget. And we try to go on the list every night, and there's some nights we say, God, here's the list, we're tired, amen. You know? <laughs> but you know what? I think God honors that. I'm being truthful with God. You know? I, I, I watched, you know, too many episodes of whatever, and now I'm tired, I can't keep my eyes open, but God, I'm still thinking about it. You know it. So I'm just asking you to do it. And so um, I'm not, no. I'm being vulnerable. 
It's a teaching on grace also. Um, well, and, and you know what? I'm a firm believer that the most powerful prayers are the 30-second prayers. The prayers where they come on you at that moment and you pray in power. Somehow we think that if my prayer isn't long and intense and I'm not in travail, somehow it's not a powerful prayer. In fact, the church I spoke at last week, at the end of the service, and it's one of those 20 minutes for worship, 20 to 30 minutes for teaching, which do you have any idea how hard that was for me? Um, you know, but then um, after that, they do communion every week. But before they do that, the entire congregation shares praise reports and, and praise prayer requests. But when they share a prayer request, you know, pray for my sister. She do this with cancer. The pastor says, Lord, in your grace and mercy, do this. And the church says, so be it. That's the end. So they take the request as the prayer. They agree with it, and they move on to the next one. And so in a period of 15 minutes, we probably went over 30 prayer requests. You know, And I think God recognizes that. God honors that. You know, we don't, you know, someone says, my sister's dying of cancer. You say, dear Lord, the sister's dying of cancer. Heal them. And they said, Lord, we disagree with what she just said. She's calling you to heal. We believe you're going to heal. Amen. And that's okay. There are times we go into travail. There are times when people ask us to pray for them, and, and it's a long, long prayer. And, and I, look it, I don't know the mystery of unanswered prayer because um, I don't understand all the mystery of God. You know, I know there are things that we pray for, and it's like, oh, my goodness. And there are things that I pray for, and it's just I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I'm praying. You know, um, our friend Ruben in Australia, he called us about four months ago. He says, we have a real problem here. We're in the midst of a drought, and the region where he lives in Australia is the only place where the drought is. Five miles down the road, or kilometers, it's raining. Grass is green. Five miles the other way, but in their valley, it's dry and it's dead, and you raise cattle. And so the cattle eat the grass, and the runoff water goes into dams, and that's where they drink their water. And he called and says, I have, we have no grass for them to graze. The dams are almost empty. He said, because of this, last year I pre-bought um, a certain number of bales of hay at a certain price, which if I bought them now, there's none available. And if you could buy them now, they're going for four times what they were a year ago. So he said, would you pray for rain? So he said, sure. So every night we prayed for rain. He calls me one day. He says, he says, your prayers are amazing. He said, we are having more rain than we've ever had in history. And he sends me pictures of green grass and dams full and fat cows. And it's just raining. It's not raining in the whole valley. It's just raining around them. Now, I don't know why God answers that prayer, and he doesn't answer other prayers that I feel like I've prayed with more faith. But he's God. You know, you want me to pray for rain? I'll pray for rain. It's up to God to do the rest. So we need to understand that to walk out the Sermon of the Mount lifestyle, <clears throat> it really goes back to what Elisa said. If we live out the first command, the Shema, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. And then Jesus said, and, Jesus added to it, love your neighbor as yourself. In this, Jesus said, the law is fulfilled. Well, if you think about what we've said today about marriage, if you love your spouse as you love yourself, in making oaths, you know, yes, I will be there tomorrow to help you move then, or yes, you can use my truck when you move. <laughs> um, but when you say you're going to do it, you do it. And people come and ask you, and they believe what you're going to say. And so Jesus said the first commandment encompasses all of the law. Loving with all our heart, with all our strength, with all our might, um, and loving neighbors ourselves. There's nothing that left undone. So the Spirit is restored integrity in the church and raising a people who will keep their word. Two psalms to close with. He who may abide, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill, 
He who speaks the truth in his heart, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In Psalm 24, 3 and 4, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and people end right there. The next part of the verse is the presence of the Lord, according to David, deceitfully. So to enter into the presence of the Lord, according to David, is not just clean hands and pure heart. It's also a mouth that when it speaks, it keeps its word. So I was going to do communion after this, but we've already done it. And we don't have to do it twice. That's a pretty cool thing. Um, but it is, it is an important covenant for us to remember as his kids and for us to, to know that Evan, marriage isn't easy. <clears throat> but marriage is worth every bit of it. So uh, if we just keep our part of the, of the deal. And the same thing. I want to be known for my yes or my no. And, and that's, you know, Jesus didn't say you have to say yes all the time. It's okay to say no. You know, but if you're going to say no, don't lie about it. Just say, if, if the no is, I don't want to do it. <laughs> you just say, no, I prefer not to do that. You know? Yeah. Well, no, I can't do it because my back hurts right now. I mean, you know, that's, yeah. All right, Father, we thank you that you keep your word. We thank you, God, that everything is summed up as your children, as Paul says that we call you Abba by the spirit of adoption, and therefore your blood runs through our veins, and you call us your sons and daughters. Then we are the, the true, pure representation of you in the midst of humanity. And you are not a man that you should lie, nor the son of man that you should repent. Have you not said, will you not do? Has he not said, and will he not make it so? God, may that be our testimony. May that be our testimony. What we have said, we will do. Whether it's loving our spouse and, and being faithful and growing in our marriage relationship, or whether it's in our family relations, business relations, church relations, that we are known for this and this alone, that what we say we will do. And we ask that you set your seal upon this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Next week is Fifth Sunday. So it's brunch Sunday, okay? So bring all your healthy food, like 